So author Philip Yancey tells this story. He remembers getting stuck in Los Angeles traffic and arriving at a car rental place about 58 minutes too late. And he says this, I walked in and I was kind of in a bad mood because I'd been stuck in traffic and I knew I was going to pay for an extra day's car rental because I was late for my car return. So I walked in and smashed the keys down and sort of like said, and he's a Christian author and speaker, um, and he said, how much do I owe? And the woman behind the counter said to him, nothing, you're all clear. And he said, I'm late. And she smiled and she said, yes. But there's a one hour grace period in your contract. Now, you've got to understand, this guy's written a book called What's So Amazing About Grace? <laughs> a one hour grace period. So he says, oh, really? He's still determined to be grumpy. What is grace? She says, I don't know. I guess it means that even though you're supposed to pay, you don't have to. We're exploring the heart of grace in the journey of discipleship. Because we call to walk as Jesus did, and anyone who's remotely honest knows that you need a, a truckload of grace for that to even become possible. And we've seen that, that grace is, is not just forgiveness, grace is enabling. Paul says, I work so hard, I even struggle with the extent of which grace is powerfully working in me. You see, grace is not just so that you can get rid of your wrong. Grace is so that you can do what is right. The gifts are called the charismata. Basically, if something's automata, automatic, it works by itself. If something's charismata, it's the working of grace. So turn to the person next to you and say, the lady from the car rental says... Come on. Grace means that even though you're supposed to pay, you don't have to. So as we're unpacking a theology and a practice of discipleship, because that's what we really want to do, I just want to remind you, as Bevan showed you last week, you can get the daily reading notes. Someone then sent me something this week which described, in terms of Bible reading, they said they'd done a track on people's lives and stats, and I'm sure it can get circulated. Someone else has got it. We can just make it a bit viral in the congregation. But they tracked people who, who opened their Bible once a week. It had a negligible, it had absolutely no effect on their life, on the, on, on the attitudes and on the practices and how much they compared to the surrounding culture. So what they did is they did a test in which they got people who didn't read their Bible, they got people who did read their Bible. And there was no difference between people, no matter how much they went to church, no matter, 
They listen to their pastor preach. If you open your Bible once a week um, or have it opened for you, it makes no difference to your life, the shape, the attitudes, your approach to life. Twice, negligible. Three times a week, you're exposed to Scripture. Three times a week, there's a little blip. It starts to register like there's a heartbeat. And then they said the research shows that it's absolutely incredible that four times a week, if you're significantly engaging with Scripture four times a week, it changes the level of depression you live with. It changes how much you struggle in your relationships. It improves marriages and uh, overcomes addictions, and they just showed the significant contrast. So can I urge you get into the notes because it's going to be a way in which you get guided in engaging Scripture. Now, of course, the power of God is present in His Word. It's not like the Bible is magic. But, you know, God's put out a good book. So uh, can I encourage you, as Bevan did, um, to, to pick up on the notes. And we've already seen the extraordinary, in the, earlier in the series, sacrifice that Jesus made just to become human. And it's a staggering thing for God to become human. And he did this in order to reveal our Abba Father to us. But today we zero in on a second critical and equally important reason that Jesus did this. And we began to look at this last week. Jesus became human to represent us before the Father as our atoning sacrifice. So if you look at our, our, our journey into this. Now, remember, we're going to, in a sense, be looking at, at number two now. We've looked at number one. We're going to look at number two. This is from earlier in the series. Jesus, don't confuse three critical issues. Jesus is God, and he's a man whose identity is God. He's fully God. He's fully human. And Bevan can give you the theology on that. And then his unique work of atonement and redemption accomplished, by the way, in his humanity. And it had to be in his humanity. And then his transferable ministry. So his identity is unique. His ministry is transferable. But the entry point, which is what we're looking at today, the, the work of atonement is unique to Jesus as well. So you've got those three things that you're going to be holding together. So we go back to 1 John, chapter 2, which has got that key verse that we're exploring. If anyone claims to live in him, they must walk as Jesus did. It may surprise you to see what the context of that verse is. So we're going to go and take some time to unpack that. So the apostle John writes, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. He is referring to what came before, but for the sake of brevity, you can read it after the service. But if anyone does sin, now he's talking to people who are already part of the family of God. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins but also for the sins of the whole world. I do not know how people who believe in what is called limited atonement get around that verse. I know they do, but I don't know how they do it. 
it's emphatic, not just for the believers, but Jesus died literally for the whole world. The atonement is for everyone. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not just for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And we know that we have come to love him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. The question of whether that person is, is, is deliberately lying to others or just lying to themselves is raised in the previous, towards the end of the previous chapter. Both are possible. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love or their love for God, both are possible translations, is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know that we are in him. And he has this line, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did, must live is our translation, but literally the, the literal translation is walk. So Jesus is described as an advocate. I write this so that you will not sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate who speaks to the Father in our defense. So Jesus has taken up a position before the Father to argue on our behalf. An advocate, and, and believe me, we don't nearly pay him what uh, you know, advocates get paid. But he's one who stands in our defense, and he represents us in order that we might not be condemned. The problem is, as we saw last week, for example, is that we're all hopelessly guilty. So we've got an advocate who's representing guilty people, and somehow we're okay with that. Not just okay with that. I don't know, maybe I'm the only person, you know, following the news in South Africa and watching court cases, or else as it was, you know, a so-called court case in the Senate of the American, um, <clears throat> you know, governance. And when somebody seemingly is patently guilty, we all burn with indignation when the guilty walk free. I don't know about you, or do you just think it's fine? Just let them rob the place. Let them do whatever they like. Let the, let the powerful bully, let the evil prevail let righteousness and justice be crushed underfoot. We're all okay. We've got an advocate who stands up for guilty people. Do you see a problem? How can this be a good thing? He, he writes so that we will not sin, but we do sin. But we've got an advocate. So there's guilty people who are about to get off. You see the problem? Thank you. Cindy sees the problem. She knows I'm a problem. <laughs> Romans 6.23 describes what the consequences of losing the case is. The consequences and wages of sin is death. This is a serious case. And we sin. For all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and fall short of the glory of God. How can Jesus be the righteous one 
who defends the unrighteous. I mean, we've got so used to Christianity that we don't even wrestle with this concept enough anymore. That deeply, deeply, something is short-circuiting justice or something else is going on. And the biblical teaching at this point, because pretty much Christianity is the only gospel that preaches wrongs put right and sins forgiven. And we need to explore how God does this. But essentially at its heart is this statement that we have a righteous advocate who is also the atoning sacrifice. And you need to understand, and that's what we're going to explore this morning. How is it possible for this to be a righteous thing that an advocate stands for the patently guilty? If you do sin, you've got this. See, God, God doesn't just overlook sin because he is nice. We don't want nice judges in our courts. We want just judges in our courts. And if you read the Psalms, for example, you will see lots and lots and lots of those prayers are asking God to be a just judge. In fact, it's like probably the biggest theme in the whole book of Psalms. At least as much as worship is itself. God, you are good. I love you. Your righteousness reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness, your justice to the skies. God, we need you to do justice. And, and some of the Psalms even question whether God is interested in the job. That's how desperate people feel about this thing. Overlooking injustice, exploitation, and abuse is not being nice. It's being evil. So we have to come to this tension that the Scripture, these just two simple verses are holding together. That the Father accepts Jesus as our advocate because he accepts Jesus as our atoning sacrifice. And throughout Scripture, this case is built that someone without sin, hear me, someone without sin will take our place and accept death on our behalf. And that picture and, and, and that idea is built consistently from the very beginning of the Old Testament. We haven't got time to go through it. Let me just ask you this. How can it be fair for somebody to be a substitute? Jesus alone is the substitute. The text made that very clear. He is the atoning sacrifice. No one else qualified. No one else can be a righteous advocate for sinners. And the reason he can do that is because of this idea of atonement. How can this be fair? Scripture has four answers. First thing is that the substitute must be willing. It cannot be imposed. It is a choice the substitute themselves must make. The second thing is that substitute must be a genuine representative. If someone takes my place in a race, they need to be an old codger. They can't be some young guy if we're in a relay or something like that. It must be a genuine replacement or representative. This particular substitute, if you're an atoning substitute, 
has to be without sin. And so the scripture explores and opens up the righteous one. This Jesus who faced temptation in every way because he was completely human and yet was without sin. At this point, we're adding to our understanding of the person of Jesus, fully tempted yet completely righteous and without sin. The other thing that Scripture insists, that the substitute must be provided by God. And so God himself comes as human to take your place and to take mine. You see, there is no power, there is no gospel power in a story that does not embrace Jesus dying on a cross to make atonement for our sin. Now, I'm going to quickly grab this because in some ways, if I just threw it on the screen, it might go by too quickly. So there are two key questions about this idea of atonement. And someone amazingly wrote it out for us. When we talk about atonement, sorry for the people on the side, you're welcome to squeeze in. I can't really go much further back. One of the key questions, and we've already opened it up, is does right and wrong actually matter? Do you think we should take the idea of righteousness and sin seriously? Does it matter? Anyone who's kind of thinking, I'm not with you, can I ask you to take a moment and think about the consequence of saying no? What is the actual consequence to the fabric of life and to your own life and to the relationships if right and wrong does not matter? Is that even a livable answer? You know, when you think of it in those terms, some of us want to relativize it and we want to say, well, it depends. (laughs) It depends what you're defining as right and wrong. So even if we just concede that we might differ on what is right and wrong, there is still the fact that right and wrong matters. And then at some point, whether it's the abuse of children or genocide or something like that, you're going to say, hell no. Because it matters. And, 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 and this is a really important thing to think through, no matter what your faith position is. Does this thing actually matter? What can I write? Explore, what can I write under does it matter? Yes. Okay. Shall I write yes? A second question is, who should make the atonement? Most of us would think the sinner, the transgressor, the offender. And if we're honest, us. Because the passage is clear that we do mess it up. So do we make atonement? Anyone else got an idea of who might possibly make atonement instead of us? And the answer is a good Sunday school answer. 
Jesus, there we go. You know, if you're in Sunday school, you're ever in doubt, the answer is always Jesus, okay? <laughs> okay. Now, if I, t- if I take this, and, and we're going to make ourselves a little matrix over here, and, and this is axis number one, in which does it matter? Yes and no. Okay? And who makes atonement? And this is axis number two over here. Us or Jesus? It's very interesting that people, although it seems so evident to us because we just read it in the Bible, that we should be saying, yes, right and wrong is really important, and so atonement should be made. You can't just laugh this stuff off. You can't pretend it doesn't matter. So we would say yes, and we would say, clearly the passage says this is Jesus, so this is the right answer. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. There we go. The interesting thing is, is that there's massive, massive, vast amounts of people that actually fit into each of these categories. So let me explain them to you. What does it look like when somebody's life says atonement is needed, but but it's the sinner who must make atonement? We call it moralism or legalism. And what this is, is, and it's important, morals are good, but it's the ism. It's the belief that you can atone for yourself by doing a whole bunch of stuff. And so, because it's a bit fast, um, I'm going to just leap to this. This fits in here. So we have to make up for our sin. We have to clean up our lives, and we have to pay for what is right and wrong. The problem is the payment can never match the debt. But essentially, we go around telling ourselves that grace is earned by crediting ourselves with good works. So we've got some bad stuff in our lives, sure. But you know what? I'll do some good stuff. And if I do enough good stuff, surely God will accept the fact that I'm sorting out my life. By the way, if you're meeting someone who doesn't often go to church and and they hear you're a Christian, they automatically think you're in this category, by the way. They automatically think you're trying to be good enough to earn your way into God's good books. And so the other thing is, and this is quite a scary thought, but in moralism and legalism, God is obligated to forgive because you've done your bit. And so you've paid your dues, therefore he has to forgive you, and then he's got to do the other things that good gods do, which is like answer all your prayers, behave himself, and keep you from all hardship and suffering. And you can know you're in this space when suffering comes and you think, God, I have got no further use for you because you're not keeping your part of the deal. Because you don't trust him, you just trust this moralistic deal that you've made with him, in which he owes you, and you're entitled to his blessing and protection because you think you've nailed him down to a contract through your good behavior. And God, if I'm good, why do you let me suffer? I don't know how many of us have tried to work that one out before. And there is that sense, but it is a flawed paradigm. 
I was very clear that the journey to follow Jesus, Jesus is not a menu. He's a banquet. Includes a whole course on suffering. So there's moralism. Another one we could look at is people who believe you somehow make atonement, um, but actually, you know, the whole thing is a little bit vacuous because you're just completely overdoing this talk about right and wrong and sin because you get to one which says, and I'm talking theologically, God is good as liberalism. God is good, but he's not judgmental. This is the God is nice theory of the universe. And the biggest sin is to actually believe that sin matters. And if you think sin matters, you're sinning because you're judgmental. And so you've become a bigot and prejudiced. So what do you need to do in this space? Well, a little bit like, and by the way, the moralist is perfectly reflected in the prodigal son by the older brother. He's, that's, his, that's his space. Remember how angry the older brother got because someone else got grace? He thinks he's earning it all the way. So the liberalist is the younger son who's basically saying to himself, give me, give me, I want to spend it on me. And so your life is spent doing what you want, not even necessarily trying to be bad. You just don't care about what is truly good. And so you just live as you please. The funny thing is, is that at some point, if you're on this side of the category, you always revert to moralism, even if you're as liberal as you can be. At some point, you think, if it's really bad, now, well, that person should be punished. And it's interesting that we're seeing in our culture today, which is extremely liberal and permissive, People reaching a point in which they say, that is enough. And they're jumping right up there. I'm a whole lot better than you. How dare you be so prejudiced? How dare you be so arrogant? How can you abuse women? How can you do this? How can you do that? You've crossed the line, and all they're doing is they're showing they're on the same side of that axis. And they liberal, liberal, liberal up until the point until you do that thing, and then they're still in the same boat, just as angry, just as judgmental. Because they actually share the same worldview that people should pay. It's just the tipping point into that payment which differs. Some people have a very narrow definition of right and wrong. And some people have a very broad definition of right and wrong. Okay, let's move on. There's another segment over here. People who would say Jesus has made atonement but right and wrong and sin and stuff isn't really that important. And it's, I mean, I called it sentimentalism. You call, there is actually a school of thought and philosophy, etc. that was called the romantics. Now, I know it's the month of love and taxes and all the rest of it, and it is Valentine's coming up. It's a bad time to be knocking romance. I use the word sentimentalism. Um, sentimentalism says this, Jesus died for us showing us that he loves us. But he did not need to die because there actually isn't that much consequences to sin. And so the gospel, a bit like Romeo and Juliet, because of misunderstandings and a whole lot of family politics, is an unnecessary tragedy, but oh, how they loved each other. 
This sentimentalism says Jesus died for me, but I don't need to change. Pure sentiment. Nothing but gospel romance without gospel substance. Interesting how our passage addresses this. It says, we know that we've come to obey him if we keep his commands. And if we say we know him and we're not doing what he says and we're not fixing our lives, Jesus, remember, has the power to demand that we repurpose our lives for his kingdom. And if we say, Jesus, thank you for dying for me, but I won't take the other bit. The Bible says you're lying to yourself. Because, yes, you're saying Jesus died for me, but you don't believe that he actually needed to in the first place. And so that takes us to salvation in Jesus, in which we recognize, according to the text, that our sin has separated us from God, and we are liable for judgment, and only a perfect, willing, fully human sacrifice could ever make atonement and deal with God's necessary, righteous opposition to sin and evil. And so grace is a free gift of love that is received by faith in Jesus that produces repentance as its fruit. And so you're not, a, you're not afraid to go to verse 3 and 4 of the text because you see the logic. You fully know that he's paid for this. How can I stay there? And so faith that believes, according to the text, is faith that obeys. Faith that believes is faith that obeys. And I'm not just talking about moving it from your head to your heart. And some of the later sessions will take it into our actions and wrestle with what are the drivers inside of us that keep us from obeying and how do we get rid of that darkness in our hearts and that futility out of our minds and turn the lights on. You see, there's a massive difference, and Dallas Willard's done a lot of writing on this, between earning, which is not grace, and effort, which is what grace produces in you as a result of what Jesus has done. We confuse effort and earning. And we say, well, Jesus has done it all. He's made full atonement, absolutely. But I don't need to change. And we show ourselves to be in the sentimental block. I don't need to make any effort. Paul says God's grace works powerfully in me. Like, I'm, I'm the person who, who, who suffers the most violence from grace because grace is determined to produce an outcome in my life. So let me jump us to six images. There are actually more. There's a whole new creation image, but six images that describe, as it were, the effect of Jesus dying for us. The first comes from the temple. It's the sacrifice image. And it tells us that we were defiled and polluted. And Jesus' death on the cross deals with the pollution of sin, and we are forgiven and free. By the way, and you'll, in, the, in the weekly notes, there's a lot more detail on this. If you put an I am forgiven and clean, 
and you declare that out loud, and you hear yourself saying that, and then you listen to your heart, and your heart is pushing back at that, then you've got work to do. And, and so often we read that and we go, yeah, I'm fine with that. I challenge you to confess it, to declare it, to actually verbalize it, say it out loud and see how you feel. It's a, it's a well-known uh, spiritual discipline to confess or declare the word of God and then see how you respond on the inside. And so all of those, what it means for us, by the way, you don't focus on number four to fix the problem, but you focus on number four to find the problem. Number four is your diagnostic, in which you go, I'm struggling to say I am forgiven and clean, or I am not guilty but righteous, or I am free to change, or whatever it is. And as you say those things, you go, I'm stuck. <laughs> I'm a mess. Then you go back in the line, and you look at Jesus. Because although you might have a theology, then in your head you're saying there, in action you're still trying to get through this thing. So there's justification. This is from the law court. We've looked at the advocate who cancels the penalty of sin and we are declared righteous. And then there's redemption, which is from the world of commerce. And, and in those days it wasn't so much things as people. And it says about us that we were slaves. But this breaks the power of sin, and we are set free to change. There's a little boy who made a sailing boat, painstakingly built himself a sailing boat, took it down to the local lake, and set it off to sail. And he rigged his little sail, and he sailed it, and then he thought he'd run around the lake because he'd get the lines right. But as this thing was sailing across, the wind changed, and suddenly his boat was taken out of sight, and he'd lost the boat that he'd made. And a couple of days later, he was walking through town, and he sees his boat in a toy shop. And he thinks, yes, and he walks into the toy shop, and he says, that's my boat. And the guy says, no, it's not. I bought it. He said, but I made it. And then he shows him some of the details that only the maker could know about the boat. And the shop owner is a compassionate guy, but he's a businessman. And so he says, listen, it's marked for X price because it's actually a very well-made little sailing boat. But I paid so much. You will need to pay me what I paid for your boat. So this little guy goes out and he starts mowing lawns and he starts cleaning up and washing cars and doing whatever he can. Until a couple of weeks later, he's able to walk back to the toy shop. And he goes into the toy shop and he pays the redemption price. And he gets his boat back. And he says to the boat, you are now twice mine. I made you and I bought you. Redemption declares to us that we are twice Belonging to Jesus. He made us and he bought us. Another metaphor is that of reconciliation. And, and we saw this in the parable of the prodigal son. Alienation, hostility, aggression, certainly from him towards his brother and everybody else. 
and he gets welcomed home. And those pictures of a father embracing his son on a dusty road with an amazed village standing around. Or this boy sitting at a table fiddling with a ring on his finger, knowing there's a cloak and sandals at the door. And that he is fully reconciled and welcomed home. And there's this picture of adoption in scripture, which says that we were like orphans, but now we have an inheritance that has been restored and we belong as children. And then there's this battle victory, um, which declares that we were, we were part of the enemy side, or at very least were captives, Hebrews chapter 2. But we get restored to the rightful authority that is ours as believers. Scripture declares us to be more than conquerors. You see, the truth about grace is that even though you were supposed to pay, look at your position, dirty, guilty, slaves, enemies, orphans, captives, even though the consequences were supposed to be yours, even though you were supposed to pay, you don't have to. Because of atonement, Jesus went to the cross. And at Easter, we'll look at some of the, as it were, important details of what that meant for him emotionally, physically, spiritually, in order to complete the transaction and become a righteous advocate who is also your atoning sacrifice. And God's full judgment on sin and evil is executed onto Jesus for you and my sake. 